Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. That's the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and to be with you and share the word of God with you. Um, I, I said this two weeks ago, but during the summer, I thought that we could pray a psalm together and before we start. So please pray with me. I'll be praying Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. O oh God, this is our prayer, that we earnestly seek you. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh faints for you. Speak, O oh God, and have us listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Paul spoke last week, which I am very grateful for, and we got to hear some amazing stuff that Jesus is doing. 
um, there are three things that happen. If you remember, there were three kind of sections and stories. And first one was Jesus calms the storm. And the second one, he crushes demons. And the third one, he heals the paralytic. And if you look at this overview of what had happened last week, of what we read, it's, it seems as though Jesus has the authority over, calms the storm. So what is that? The natural world crushes demons. He has authority over the supernatural world. And three, he heals the paralytic by saying, your sins are forgiven. He has authority over sin. And so now we see this next section. It's about discipleship. And if you've been following along with us from chapter 8 and now into the second portion of chapter 9, there are these things that are happening. It's almost as if Matthew is showing us a pattern to not just establish Jesus' authority, but to show us this crescendo that is happening over time, what people are seeing, so that we see what is being shown to us in the Bible very clearly. What was the first one? The first one with three stories, right? Do you remember the leper, the centurion, Peter's mother-in-law? There was three. And then it was about Jesus' authority moving in power. And then there was two people who wanted to be Jesus' disciple, right? And he said, this is the cost. So there was two. And then last week, we saw three things that happened. Calms the storm, crushes demons, heals the paralytic. And that's three. And today, we see two sections on discipleship. And next week, we have another three. And that ends that first um, section of after Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. And we see three, two, three, two, three, which to me, if you have been listening to the way I preach and the way I share how we can continue to see the Bible, there are ways that people wrote to show emphasis. And one of the key things is a burger. Am I, do you guys remember? There's a bun, and there's a patty, and then there's another bun. And then it's, it's so that it puts focus on this center patty. But here we see a Big Mac. So we see one a patty, another bun, a patty, another bun. And so this is the Mac Daddy of burgers that we are seeing here in Matthew. And in the patties, we see that Jesus is honing in on discipleship. And today is the second patty of this Big Mac. And so when we want to continue to see what is going on, and Matthew is really good. He does this all on purpose. And even when he goes with the genealogy that we went over in the beginning, he goes, there are 14 generations, 14 generations, another 14. So he's big on these numbers, but the number is not the point. The point is, after G you can see this picture, Jesus is doing these, all these amazing miracles. And all of a sudden, the, the patty part is when he hones in on somebody, a disciple. And then another huge miracle moving kind of events, they are happening. And then he hones in on discipleship. So when it hones in, we are also almost as if we are watching this great war and battle happening. And then you see the camera kind of zoom into this one section of this great fight. And it's in slow-mo. And we're seeing this happening. This is what we are to see here. This is honing in the discipleship that Jesus is doing as he is walking in Capernaum. In verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
All three synoptic gospels record this event. By synoptic, I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That means they follow a very similar pattern. We call them the synoptic gospels. And interestingly enough, every single synoptic gospel that has recorded this event of Matthew all followed the healing of the paralytic as well. In the other two synoptics, meaning Mark and Luke, the tax collector is recorded as Levi, which also gave prominence to the tax collector. Mark chapter 2, Luke chapter 5. But, and then they give a little additional info. However, Matthew, which he's recorded here as Matthew, here does none of that. And even if it's what you would consider a small detail. So Matthew doesn't put in any additional detail that even Mark and Luke puts in. And you have to consider, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Especially if this is you. Even if you were writing, let's say, a biography about someone else. And this biography is about someone else, but that someone else would come to you and now you're a part of the story. Wouldn't you write your own feelings and thoughts? Especially if you thought that you were party directly involved in this particular narrative juncture. Wouldn't you write something like, <clears throat> oh, when I, oh, when I had heard from someone else that Jesus was teaching, my heart had already begun to soften, and I was hungry for more of this heavenly teaching, when it just so happened at that exact moment, Jesus shows up and says. Or you could write something like, unsatisfied and disheartened from his grueling and purposeless work, Matthew found relief when a teacher of great promise showed up and said. But what is written? It says, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew knew he was writing scripture. This, again, is no surprise to the writers. He wrote what the Holy Spirit would lead him to write. Number, and the second point on why he would write something like this is Matthew knew that at no point was he the star of the show, not even his call to be a disciple. At every juncture in this gospel account, we see that the primary character is Jesus. There was no preliminary conversation, no incident directly related to Matthew with Jesus prior to this. The Matthean account records what is most important and pertinent. And that's the question we ask. What is the point? What is the point? There are two very important things that are happening in verse 9 that we are not to miss. And it answers the question. It answers this question. In its essence, who is a disciple of Christ? In its essence, who is a disciple of Christ? Number one, they are called by Jesus. Jesus said to Matthew, regardless of his current situation, his heart condition, whatever he had in his bank account, his religious purity, Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. They are called by Jesus. Number two, there is always an immediate response of obedience. And he rose and followed him. 
Luke shows us that he meant he rose and left everything behind. Number one, they are called by Jesus. Number two, there is always an immediate response of obedience. In its essence, who is a disciple of Jesus? This call is immediate and effectual. I said this two weeks ago, but another way we have said this historically or theologically is we call it irresistible grace. I think the better word is effectual grace. Effectual grace. The idea is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the power and capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. You know, it's not the Holy Spirit that drags people kicking and screaming to, the, to Christ. Here, get to Christ. You'll like it. So against our wills. That's not what we mean by irresistible grace or effectual grace. The Holy Spirit changes our inclination and the disposition of our wills. So when we were previously unwilling to accept Christ, now we are willing and more than willing. We're not dragged to Christ, but when we see this effectual grace, when we see that the call is immediate and effectual, we run to Christ and we embrace him joyfully because the commands of God is the invitation to the gospel. God melts the hardness of our hearts and he makes us new creatures. The Holy Spirit resurrects us from spiritual death so that we can become like Christ and we want to come to Christ. The reason why we want to come to Christ is because God has already done a work of grace in our souls. Without that work, we would never have had the desire to come to Christ. That is why we say regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. And I could go into more about this, but I think Chunsuk has been doing a bunch of the come on Saturday. That's my plug. Come on Saturday. Listen, listen to the, the sermons on Saturday. But tax collectors were recipients of not just a lot of derision because people looked down on them. They were kind of like traitors. Oh, how dare you collect money from your own people? Uh, but they were also usually very wealthy men, very wealthy men. And there are two places that scholars think that Matthew could have collected these taxes, either on the great road from Syria to Egypt or near the lake where this just all was happening in uh, Capernaum where taxes were levied by people crossing the lake because the other side wasn't ruled by Herod Antipas, but it was ruled by Herod Philip, which would have been considered another country. So it's like, you know, you work in New York, but you live in Jersey, but you get taxed in New York, and like, what is going on? But that's exactly what's happening here. And it would have been considered another country. But what, in either case, it was still very likely that because these roads were very highly populated, a lot of, pe a lot of traffic was going through these places, Matthew was a very wealthy man. And it's also depicted by the great banquet that's thrown in his house, and we see that in the Gospel of Luke. That was just verse 9. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When Matthew leaves everything behind to follow Jesus, it wasn't with mourning. 
It wasn't a journey trudgingly, dragging your feet. There is a banquet that's thrown. And we're to picture this. He's showing us this picture. All these people, a.k.a. disciples, that were following Jesus at the time and many tax collectors and sinners, they were all reclining together, meaning they were all eating and having fellowship, perhaps even bowling. There is a most distinguished and honored guest, Jesus Christ, but around him, picture this, there is a most distinguished and honored guest, Jesus, but around him, eating and having fellowship with him were the most disreputable. Who do you recline with? Who do you hang out with? Do you know why we only hang out or have fellowship or recline with certain people and not others? What if you saw Jesus hanging out with people that not only you wouldn't normally hang out with, but had a disdain for? Are you affiliated very strongly with a political party? And imagine this, Jesus is hanging out with the other party members. Or are you the type of person that claims, who, me? I don't have a disdain for anyone. You know, today it's unthinkable that a public figure would recline with anyone that they would disagree with. Do you see that today? A public figure wouldn't ever have fellowship with someone they disagree with, and yet, Here we are, because of Jesus, sinners of all backgrounds, come, recline at his feet. And to me, that's the dream. To recline and have fellowship with all of you. Wouldn't that be awesome, though? He's like, hey, guys, let's recline and just we'll change all these into couches and then never leave. But that's kind of the dream. And and one of the things that our church, we're trying to do, and how can we do this better and How can we invite you to our homes? I really want to see, I want you to see how I live. I live in ultimate luxury, so I want to share that with you. There's so much stuff in my house. No, but I'm just kidding. But I think what we'll try to do is we'll literally try to play this out. And over the next course of a few weeks, I think you'll receive invitations to visit one of the elders' house and mine. And I'm going to have Junsak do it randomly, so... It could be anybody, right? It could be anybody. But don't talk to him about it, so it can still stay random. But, you know, that's, 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 that's a Christian's dream, to really be able to recline and have fellowship with people because the center is who? The center isn't anything else other than we all recline at the feet of Jesus. You know what really gets you upset when you really start raging? Isn't it because the center isn't Jesus? When you start hating somebody, when you, like, when you have a disdain for another party or someone else, isn't it because the center isn't Jesus? Because if the center was Jesus, would you be raging or would you be sitting and reclining and listening and learning? Because of Jesus, here we are, Sinners of all backgrounds, 
recline at Jesus' feet. Look at this picture. If you look at the other synoptics, it's a great banquet. And I would imagine hundreds, maybe thousands of people gathered in this place around Jesus. In verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, this wasn't asked as a genuine question, but an accusatory remark. Have you guys ever heard that when someone asks you a question, but it's not really asking you a question, it's an accusatory remark? What are they really saying? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Guilty by association. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Isn't it because he is not a righteous man? Why do you only hang out with gamblers? Isn't it because you gamble? Why do you only hang out with golfers? Isn't it because you golf? I can honestly say no to that one. Why do you only hang out with gamers? Isn't it because you're a nerd? <laughs> how can a religious man, <laughs> sorry about that, uh, how can a religious man associate himself all the time with irreligious people? How can a religious man associate himself all the time with irreligious people? I mean, who did you just call to be a disciple? A tax collector? That's a fair question, right? No? And you're like, yeah. And I would respond, ah, you Pharisee. But when he heard it, meaning when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But when Jesus heard it, and we take a step back and see that this accusatory remark wasn't made to Jesus, and it was made about him to his disciples. You can't help but to ask, why is it that when snakes have something bad to say, they can't say it to your face? You might be like, wow, that, that's mean. It's like, no, no, no. I'm just calling them what Jesus called them. Remember, he called them brood of vipers, so it's all good. Why is it that when snakes have something bad to say about you, they can't say it to your face? It's to plant dissent. When you have something bad to say and you can't say it to the source, what do you do? You plant seeds of dissent around the person. Do you do that? And I would respond, ah, you Pharisee. But when Jesus heard it, he gives a response. And in this response, there is buried a rebuke. Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. This metaphor is applied to the spiritual life of people. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus is referring to himself as the physician. But there's more. There's more. In thinking that they were healthy, quote-unquote healthy, the Pharisees' real claim is what? Their claim is that we don't need Jesus 
They don't need Jesus because if you are really well, why are you complaining that a doctor is healing the sick? If you are really well, though, why are you complaining that a doctor is healing the sick? Can't you see that there's something wrong with you? And so Jesus continues to say, go and learn. Go, meaning it had the implication saying, go on a journey. Do a pilgrimage. Go on a retreat and learn. Don't go on a journey, pilgrimage, retreat to gather yourself, but in a genuine effort to understand. Go on this journey. Go on this pilgrimage. Go on this retreat. This is not a self-help kind of thing that Jesus is enforcing here or even supporting. He's saying go and learn. When you go on this journey, do it in a genuine effort to understand what he is saying. Because in the end, why are you so angry? Isn't it because you don't understand? You don't understand. Think about that. Why are you so upset? Isn't it because you don't understand? Think about that. And he goes, understand this. Go and learn. Understand this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That is from Hosea chapter 6, 6. I'll read it for you. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Here in Hosea 6.6, it's steadfast love, which is chesed. And here in the Greek, we see that, understand this, I desire mercy, which is eleos, which meant mercy, compassion, or pity. So this chesed, this steadfast love, calls for mercy or pity to the broken. And if you are really well, why are you not more concerned for the sick? If you really think you're healthy, if you really think you're well, why aren't you more concerned for those that are sick? And who are the sick? Jesus qualifies it. Who are the sick? For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Is that it? No. There's verse 14. The Pharisees are, oh, okay. And verse 14 comes up. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Excuse me, we have a follow-up question, Jesus, and this is the follow-up question. There is a follow-up question to the Pharisees' comment from before. Then how come the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but not your disciples. To see it in context, the religious people of the day regularly fasted. You know, in the Old Testament, we went over this, the only fast that, were, that was prescribed was on the Day of Atonement. And if you don't know what the Day of Atonement is, Yom Kippur. So now everybody knows, right, because we grew up in the school system here. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. That's the only day that a fast was prescribed in the Old Testament. But, the, but by the time it goes to Jesus' day, we see that fasting was a common and regular practice if you were religious, if you were a pious Jew. 
In the New Testament times that we see here, pious Jews fasted every Monday and Thursday, and sometimes even extra days on top of this regular regimen. And it could have been, and this is speculation, it could have been that at the time of this fast is when they were feasting. Right? Imagine this, you're like, I got to be pious, I got to follow God. Every, all the pious people, all the religious people that love God, that love the Torah, right, that love the law of God, they're fasting Monday, Thursday, and boom, there's this great banquet. All the sushi that you can eat, and it's like with the special hot sauce. And you're like, oh my goodness. And then that's the question. I have a follow-up question. How come your disciples aren't fasting and they get to eat all this stuff? Hence, the question is about fasting. If you came to save the sick, how can these so-called saved people, if you came to save the sick, how come these so-called saved people that you are calling, how come they don't follow the rituals and practices that we are doing? And Jesus counters their question with one of his own. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Well, can they? I mean, can they they mourn and fast when the bridegroom is with them? If they did, it would be completely improper. And you would question Are they even guests at this wedding? Do they even belong here? I was at a fabulous wedding yesterday. Imagine I went to Danny and Una's wedding, and I was like, I'm not eating anything that you guys prepared because I'm fasting and I'm holy. Can you really do that without dishonoring the guests? Can they? This question is an impossible. No, they can't. It's impossible to say yes to that. Mourning is proper when? It's mourning is proper at funerals, but not at weddings. There is joy at weddings. There is a celebration. And here it says, when the bridegroom is present. But the interesting here is that Jesus doesn't mention the bride, but the bridegroom. If you don't know what bridegroom is, it's because um, we now just say groom, (laughs) because it's short for bridegroom. Anyway, Jesus very pointedly refers to himself as the groom. And then he mentions that he will be taken away from them. That's when the disciples will fast. And Jesus' prophecy does come true. Jesus dies for our sins. And he rises again in three days. He ascends to the right hand of God until we know he will come again. And if Jesus calls you, your heart is changed. And it no longer looks and is enamored by the money that you got as a tax collector, no matter how much it is. You love him and you want to follow him because following Jesus is a joy. But because he has not come back yet, it will get tough at times. And when it gets tough, the disciples fasted. 
This is shown in Acts 9, 9, 13-3, 14-23, 27-9. All throughout the book of Acts, they talk about the disciples collectively fasting. But to further qualify it, he gives two metaphors. And these two metaphors would have related well to a wedding celebration. Clothing and wine. You know, <clears throat> I'm just going to take a brief pause. Lots of folk use these next two verses or, uh, to do other things or to, to preach or to teach as a standalone. I would be very wary of preaching or teaching these next two verses as a standalone. They are connected to all the things that we are talking about, okay? So he relates these two metaphors which would have related to the mind of the listener to the wedding celebration, clothing and wine. In verse 16, he goes, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. If you are preparing for a nice event, like a wedding, and you saw that your nice clothes, oh my gosh, it's like tomorrow or two days later, had a small tear on it, you would not put a new patch on it. I know today it's unrelatable because if there's anything missing, like the string is a little loose, you can just throw away your clothes. But back in the day, they didn't necessarily do that. If you had a small tear, they would put a patch on it. The patch, if it was new, then would have shrunk in the wash. And when the new patch shrunk, it would tear the old clothes because the old clothes were already shrunk. So if it stretched more, it would have torn it completely. So Jesus goes, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Your, new I mean, your old clothes are now completely ruined. Verse 17, the second metaphor. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Neither, meaning the same point is going to be made about the clothes, but this time a different illustration. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. The wineskins, which were made from animal hide, if they were old, that means they would have already been stretched out. So if you did this, the old animal hide, which contains the new wine, this old wineskin, which was already dried and cracked from the previous wine, when there's new wine and it starts to ferment and it starts to expand, it will blow up. You would have no more wine. So if you have new wine, it goes into new wineskins. So what does this all mean? Fasting, weddings, patches, and wineskins. Everyone has their own understanding of what pious religion is, even atheists. So listen, everyone has their own understanding of what pious religion is. We all believe that we should live and abide by a certain set of regulations and rules. We all believe that, and we all think it's all coming from a good place. We all believe that it's coming from a good place. These certain sets of rules and regulations that we live by, a.k.a. your heart. 
science, experience, and even here, old religious traditions, etc. Jesus is showing us to understand what he is teaching, to understand who he is. We need new wineskins. We need new clothes. Did you hear that? You need new clothes. You might have thought, right, the point of that whole patching thing is, yeah, we're not to put new patches on old clothes, right? Except, uh, so, but why would you wear old clothes to a wedding? You'd look raggedy, especially if at a tear. No, the point is that you can't put new patches on old clothes and expect it to look good. You need new clothes. We need a new understanding to be able to receive Jesus. We need new life to know Jesus. In John, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. This comes with the Holy Spirit opening your eyes and softening your heart so that you can truly understand. Just like Matthew, when Jesus calls you, it is a glorious call. Just like new wine must be poured into new wineskins, so both are preserved. To hear and receive the good news of Jesus Christ, you must have new birth. How do we get new birth? How do we get this new birth? Hey, I want to celebrate. I want to be joyous. You know, I, I thought I was following Jesus all my life, but when I come here, it's like, I don't like, ah, I'm mad. And here you're showing us in the word that it is a joyous celebration. How do we get new birth? There's a famous verse that almost everybody knows, even non-Christians, people like write it under their eyeballs and things like that when they do uh, sports, John 3.16. But there are two verses before that. How do we get new birth? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life how do we get new birth look up and see Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for your sins. Know and believe that only he can save you and that now he has called you to follow him. Leave everything else you had that you held on to. Everything else that you had that, thought, that you thought gave you hope, it is a false hope. Leave everything else behind that you thought gave you identity, it is a false identity. Leave everything else behind that thought gave you security. What is it? Money? Your bank account? What is it? Your title? All the accomplishments that you've done? All the credentials that you have? Your resume? False security. And hold on to the only true hope. Hold on to the only true hope. Hold on to the identity that Christ gives you. You are his child. Hold on to the identity Christ gives you. You are his child. 
and know that He is strong enough to secure you for eternity. Hold on to the only true hope, identifying as a child of God, and we know that Christ is strong enough to secure you for eternity. My brothers and sisters, these are for your ears to hear. You need new birth if you want to be a disciple of Christ. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. And if the Holy Spirit has touched your heart, then know this. It's when you look up, nothing that you have done, but when you look up and see what Christ has done for you, you have eternal life. Let's pray.